if you can't tell. Frank is with Shelby and his family tonight celebrating Shelby's 30th birthday. So I thought it would be funny if I gave you all Shelby's phone number and we all called her at the exact same time, just blew up her service, not really. Um, but he, he uh, said that he's sorry he's not here, he's excited to be back in 1 Corinthians next week. Um, so I'm standing in, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Joe, I'm one of the elders here, and I would say that I am tied for seventh as far as uh, what string quarterback I am on the elder preaching line. Um, <clears throat> you've got Frank, Tyler, Tyler, and Trey, not necessarily in that order, but you put them in whatever order you want to based on your, your affinity with them. And then, of course, you've got uh, Steve Wheeler, uh, Nick Oviedo, again, not in that order, but two other of the lay elders with us, and Steve's a very gifted teacher. Nick's in education, so he's got to be a good teacher. And then you got Moreland and me. Jim Moreland and, and I are the caboose. We were the only options tonight. It's too late for Moreland, so I'm here. All right? <laughs> so instead of being in, in 1 Corinthians, um, we're going to be in Mark 6. We're going to do a fairly, probably a, a familiar passage to everyone, but hopefully look at it with fresh eyes tonight. We'll also be in John 6 for a minute, so if you want to turn your Bibles to Mark 6 and Mark uh, and, and uh, put a placemat in, in John 6, we'll be there as well. Um, again, for those of you who don't know me, I, I've been, my wife and I have been attending Redemption Arcadia for over a decade. Um, <clears throat> we started at the old property, moved over here. We have two kids, Willa and Ezra. If any of you are in children's ministry, thank you. We appreciate you. Uh, we love you for what you do for our kids, and we host an RC for the past six years, and that's probably enough about me, and we're just going to dive into to scripture tonight and, and learn more, hopefully, about uh, the character of Christ um, in this passage. So I'm going to do a little bit by way of introduction, but before I do that and before we dive in and start reading, let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll get started. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace and your mercy upon us. We thank you um, for your word and its truth, Lord, that we get to come together as a body, uh, that we get to study the way that you've revealed yourself, chosen to reveal yourself to us, Lord, that you've given it to us in a way uh, that we know is living and breathing and, and profitable for us, Lord. We, we pray that you would please speak through us now. Please show us more of yourself. Please show us more of your, our Savior, Lord. We ask that if anything that is said that is unprofitable or unhelpful, Lord, that you would take it away, and only that which is yours would you make stick. Lord, we ask for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I mentioned, I know it's a, a fairly familiar passage to most, if not all of you. Um, by way of context, I'm going to read most of the chapter, just so we have it fresh in our mind. We'll primarily be talking about verses 45 through 52. But I'm going to read most of the chapter. I'm going to skip verses 14 through 30. And the only reason I'm going to do that 
is each one of the Gospels that record this event and these miracles has a, a little snippet in the middle of it, um, and it talks about John the Baptist being beheaded. Now, if that's something you want to study tonight before you go to bed, I'll show you where all three texts are, but I'm going to skip it for tonight because we're really going to focus on the transition of Jesus and the disciples kind of on their first mission and then what happens afterwards. Um, <clears throat> I just made a point that there are multiple uh, recordings of this specific event, so Jesus walking on water as well as the feeding of 5,000. If you want to study it more and cross-reference it, uh, Matthew 14 and John 6 are the two other passages that you would want to look at. Tonight we'll spend just a second in John 6. Um, so again, I'm going to read most of it. Again, uh, just by way of introduction and by way of context, at this point in Mark, the disciples have been called. Um, Jesus has been performing miracles. Uh, this is on the heels of him uh, with Jairus' daughter, raising Jairus' daughter. Uh, so he's performed exorcism, miracles, he's taught quite a bit. I only say that to say that the disciples have seen his divinity, his, his um, decision to reveal himself as the Messiah. They've, they've witnessed these things. They're well into the ministry at this point. So that's helpful to think about when you think about how the disciples respond and how the crowd responds as we read through this. So my goal... Again, reading through this afterwards, I'm just going to make a few points about what we just read, just almost commentary, and then we're going to spend most of the time looking at it through the lens, hopefully with a fresh perspective of what can we glean about the character of Christ? What can we glean about our Lord and Savior? What a helpful byproduct will be what can we glean about the disciples, the crowd, how they respond, and then how Christ responds to them. But the primary focus is, I hope, to dig a little bit more into who our Lord and Savior is, and then we'll have some points of application as we leave. So Frank said to talk for at least an hour. He's not here, so I was going to go for like 30 to 45 minutes. One person laughed at that. All right, let me get started. So Mark 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, and he began and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, 
When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So now let your eyes go over to verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out, out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking by the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, Again, just a few points as we, as we read that, a couple things that stick out, and then we'll dive into some of the characteristics and the responses of Christ. But going back all the way to verses 1 through 6, right, the context is he's now moved on to Nazareth, he's performing some miracles, um, and then he calls his disciples and sends them out. He sends them on their first mission trip, if you will. Right? We know what happens. The disciples are received the power of Christ to go and exercise demons, to perform miracles, and it's a successful trip. So quickly progresses into verse 30. The apostles return. They're tired. They're weary. They're telling Christ what happens. There's crowds there, and Jesus says, let's take a retreat. Let's go. Let's go find rest. But they don't find rest. Instead, they find another crowd seeking out Christ. This is why the context is important. Like, 
the crisis has a successful, albeit, um, mission so far. The disciples have had a succession for successful first mission out without their rabbi with them. So now they're going to get some respite. They're going to get some rest. And Christ shows his compassion. He, he's called his friends to go get rest. And then he sees the crowd and, de- and describes them as being like lost sheep. He first teaches them. The first thing that he does is addresses their spiritual need. So he pauses the disciples what they need, what they want, in order to step into the crowd's life, giving them the word of God. Then he prays, and then he feeds them. In the midst of this, the disciples ask maybe a slightly obnoxious question, but rightfully so. They want to get on with their rest. They want to get on with what Christ had originally told them to do. They're just being obedient from my, from my perspective. And you fast forward, he feeds them, there's more than enough, and then this kind of propels us into the verses that we're going to focus on. Verse 45 starts with, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and leave. So just a cursory reading, if we were just to go through the Gospel of Mark and, and notice this, we might logically ask the question, hold on, what changed in, in Christ's mind that immediately he wants to send the disciples out? This is why it's really beneficial that, Marth, that Matthew and John both record this. And I said we'd be in John for just a second. So if you turn to John, if you have it, turn to John 6, we get the answer to that question. In John 6, verses 14 and 15, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So John lets us know why the immediately is there. They received the blessing, and, and now their mentality had turned back to their own agenda. Jesus, perceiving that, dismisses his disciples. He tells them to go to the other side. And then he takes the time to dismiss the crowd. And I think that's really important as we dig into this a little bit more. So he sees the crowd. His compassion is stirred. He seeks to bless them. He seeks to teach them. And then he seeks to give them nourishment before he sends them away, knowing all that this is going to happen. So you move forward in the verses, and now now we're really going to spend time in 45 through uh, 52. He puts the disciples in the boat. He sends them away, dismisses the crowd. The next thing that he does is he goes up to pray. And again, that doesn't seem weird at first until you read on and you notice that he takes note that the disciples are out in the middle of the sea and that they're making headway with difficulty. But he still prays. He continues to pray. In fact, it says that he went up onto the mountain in evening And it's not until the fourth watch of the night, which is about between, not about, it's between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's late. Some time has passed before he decides to intercede. Interesting note, I think, and I think we can glean a little bit of something out of that. So he progresses up the mountain. He prays. It's the fourth watch. Now he goes and acts. The other gospels record the exact same thing. So it's only after this disciples 
respond that Jesus actually shows himself to them. Notice that they respond in fear. It's only after they cry out as he means to pass by them. After they cry out, fearing that it's a ghost, that he finally reveals himself to them. They've been out there for hours. He hasn't been that far away. He finally reveals himself, and, and how does he reveal himself? With kindness and compassion. He says, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. I know everyone knows the answer to this, but, but just for pure amusement, how many times does fear not or do not be afraid appear in the Bible? Who said that? Not far off. A little high. Any guess? Price is right? Over, under? No? So from what I could, from what I could find on the internet, and Frank proofread this and, and fixed my answer. According to the internet, there's at least 365, do not be afraid or fear not. The best I could glean was it's fair to say well over 300, like regardless of the ter- interpretation. So in Old Testament, it's used a lot. A lot of our favorite verses probably have that, right? Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Right? The, some of the favorite verses of the disciples were probably those words, fear not. So he shows up with the word of God and he shows up with compassion. And then, notice what happens. It says the disciples were terrified, essentially. I'm, I'm using my words. But terrified, thinking that it was a ghost, and then after he reveals himself and the wind ceases, they were utterly astounded in verse 51. And then scripture is kind enough to tell us why. Why were they astounded? I mean, in all fairness, we know the context. He's performed a lot of miracles already. Walking on water shouldn't be that big of a deal. He just fed 5,000 men plus others, five loaves and two fish. But they're utterly astounded, and scripture says why. They didn't understand because their hearts were hardened. So that added commentary is just supposed to help us kind of flesh out what we can learn about Christ. What do we learn about his characteristics just in this one tiny little passage? And I thought for tonight, I I at least would point out four, maybe five. And then we'll dig into a little bit of the crowd's response and the disciples' response. So follow with me as I walk through these, assuming that I have my notes in the right order, which I don't. So first thing I thought of, or I saw here in my studies, is Christ is tremendously patient. Tremendously patient. He's patient to dismiss the crowd, even though he knows their intentions. Now, you have to cross-reference John to see that. But once you know that, you see that he's, he's very patient. He was patient enough to stop what he was doing with the disciples because he saw them. He was patient enough to then feed them after he nourished them with the word of God. Word of God. And then he was patient to not just bolt. He knows their intentions. Like He could have jumped in the boat too. They could have left. There's a, there's a bunch of things he could have done, but instead he stays and dismisses them. So he's patient with the crowd. He's patient with nature. Think about this for a second. He's Lord of everything. John says that he created it all. He sees them from the mountaintop. 
he could have told the wind to stop. He, he, he could have done that. That would not have been a big deal. He allows nature to put the disciples, and I'm using nature as a personification, but he allows the disciples to go through a trial for his purposes. He's patient with the trial before he goes and helps them. He's patient with the disciples. I mean, let's be honest. They just exercise demons and perform miracles. You would think their faith would be a little bit stronger than to be so afraid of a storm at sea. But he's patient with them. He doesn't rebuke them. He's kind to them. He's compassionate. He has compassion on the disciples, as we just noted, and how he comforts them in their distress. He's perfectly compassionate in, we said this a moment ago, the way that he addresses the crowd. The first thing that he does is he addresses the spiritual need. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So he teaches them first. Then he prays. He honors God, the Father, in all that he does. And then he he gives them nourishment, the physical nourishment. That one stuck out to me because maybe on more than one occasion, I really want God to deal with the physical need before he deals with my spiritual need. But that's just not, that's not Christ's MO in all the Gospels. This is the constant. He always addresses the spiritual need first. He's powerful. Now that should go without saying, but he is powerful in his deity. He's walking on water. I don't really have to make that argument. Like he's defying gravity. That's power, right? He creates a miracle where he feeds 5,000. That's power. He calms the wind. That's power. But this was one that I hadn't really thought about or, or uh, noodled on in the past. He gives his power to the disciples. Notice that in the earlier in the passage. He gives them the power to exercise demons. He gives them the power to perform miracles. He's generous. I mean, that's the other thing I, I wrote down. He's generous in that he gives his power away. He gives his teaching and instruction and provision. He's generous with his time. He, he, he had called the disciples to go and retreat. They, they had just spent time apart. These are his, his friends. He's generous in that he pauses what maybe his agenda or their agenda is because he sees people in need. He's generous with everything that he has. He's tremendously generous in doing the Father's work and will. It's not on his time. It's on God's time. Well, he is God. That, you know what I mean. He, he's, he's generous in the sense that he has a true, truer and better understanding of time than the disciples, the crowd, or us. So that's a starting list, I think, of what we can glean from this and the amount of time that we have. He's perfectly patient. He's perfectly compassionate. He's powerful. Our Savior is generous. So what about the other characters in the story when we read this? What can we glean from the crowd? What can we glean from the disciples? Let's start with the crowd. The crowd is lost. They're described as being like sheep without a shepherd. The crowd is hungry. I, I infer that a little bit into the text. But the fact that Thomas and, and the disciples come and ask Christ to send them away to get food, I'm, I'm assuming the disciples weren't the only one hungry, but it's late. The crowd's hungry. So I add... They're hungry, they're humbled. I don't know how the rest of you are when you're hungry, but you have a genuine sense of your humanity when you're really hungry. 
especially if you're really, really, really hungry, you have a, a very genuine sense of your humanity. So you're, you're humbled. Um, <clears throat> they're selfish. The crowd was very selfish. We have to look at John 6 for this, but it's clearly in the text. They took the blessing that Christ gave, and then they wanted to turn to their own agenda. They wanted to make Christ the king that they wanted, not the king that he was meant to be. So what about the disciples? Kind of sounds like I'm, I'm beating up on the crowd a little bit. Let's beat up on the disciples. That's usually what we do, right? This is one of those passages where I had, just, I had trouble with that. I, the first word that came to mind was obedient. Now track with me for a second. If you go back to verses uh, 7 through 12, the disciples were obedient to go on mission. There's nothing recorded that said that they didn't want to go. They went and they had a successful mission, and then they returned to Christ. 30 through 44, they were obedient to follow Christ's instruction to go with him to rest. Keep going. They were obedient to find the fish and the loaves after he told them to. They were obedient to pick up the leftovers, albeit still tired and wanting that rest. And then 45 through 51, they were obedient to get in the boat and go on the other side. So in everything that he had asked them to do, there's nowhere in the text that infers that they weren't obedient. So then the second question that always comes to my mind, this is purely my... flesh legalistic humanity is I always want to know where they blessed after obedience did obedience equal blessing so then I ask the question was the crowd blessed were they blessed well I don't know the disciples although they went on mission they did encounter demons Uh, they were obedient to Christ's instruction and they were met with crowds when they were tired and hungry I don't know about you guys, but if I had just fulfilled a duty and it was time for rest and I was met with a crowd, I don't know that I would count that crowd as a blessing, personally. Fast forward, they get into the boat, they're met with headwinds, they're met with fear, they're met with doubt. I don't know if I would count those as blessings. But we've got to remember all of Scripture. Now, we're looking at it from a different lens. James says, consider it all joy, brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds. Considering it all joy is kind of having this mindset of understanding what true blessings are. We can look at this from a totally different perspective. They absolutely were blessed. The crowd was blessed, too. If you think about it, both groups were blessed by Christ's presence. That should be enough. They were also blessed by Christ's provision. They were blessed by Christ's intervention on a number of occasions. He stopped to teach the crowd. He stopped to feed all of them. So they weren't just blessed by his miracles, but by his presence and his provision and by his teaching. And once more, those trials led to something. They led to Christ coming to them on the sea and showing them compassion. It was only after the trials that they got to hear, fear not, or do not be afraid. So I would make the argument that, yeah, the disciples were blessed, the crowd was blessed. 
And it's only after all of that that I think we can come to the fifth point of Christ's character in this, and maybe the most important. And we'll wrap up on this. And I'll finish before 7.30, and you guys can all tell Frank that he's got to finish before 7.30 now, because I was able to do it. Christ shows tremendous grace in this passage. Just think about it for a moment. All of his responses are rooted in a gracious heart. He defines himself as being gentle and lowly. And you can absolutely see that in this passage. He blesses the disciple. He blesses the crowd. But the way that he blesses them is first and foremost out of identifying their real, true need and then addressing that need. And then... When they get it wrong, because the crowd gets it wrong, they want to take the blessing and run, turn to their own agenda. The disciples get it wrong. They, albeit, don't want to necessarily do that and turn to their own agenda, but they doubt. Their faith is tested and they doubt. They just experienced his power. They just experienced what it was like to exercise demons and perform miracles, and they doubt. Christ doesn't chastise any of them. No, he stays and patiently dismisses the crowd. I add the word patiently, but he he dismisses the crowd. He could have bolted. We already said that. He comes to the disciples. He intercedes in their trial. And he's gracious in his response. Fear not, for it is I. It's so sweet. I mean, if for nothing else, we get to spend time walking through Mark's account of this and just thinking about the very nature of who our Savior is. I don't know about the rest of you, but I need to be reminded of that on a more regular basis. Because unfortunately, when I start to think of my responses or when I start to think of the crowds and the disciples' responses, I tend to think that they hit a little too close to home. They tend to hit a little too close to home in that I'm close to the crowd. I'm sorry. I'm close to the action, right? I'm an elder. I lead an RC. I'm, I'm right in the thick of it. All of us are. It's easy, us, easy for us to see words in Scripture like they didn't understand for their hearts are hardened and to take some trepidation or warning from that. The reality is we are all very close, but we're all, all still human hearts still want to harden themselves. Our flesh is not weak. It doesn't die easily. So instead of focusing on that, we focus on the characteristics of Christ. How he responds to us when we're in those moments. He responds with grace, with gentleness, with kindness. So I didn't quite do it. It's 731. I was close. Let's pray. I'll get you back on your night. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we, Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word and its truth. Father, we, we thank you for uh, Pastor Frank and, and the other pastors, um, Lord, here at Redemption Arcadia, that, that they seek to preach your word in its fullness, Lord, and that we have nights like tonight that we can dedicate to studying you more, to learning more about you, Lord. I do pray that you would Reveal yourself more to us in this coming week, Father. Prepare our hearts for Sunday. Prepare our hearts for tomorrow. 
Keep them soft to your presence. Keep them soft to your word. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask all these things for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.